This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 12, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we start with Enriqueta Velarde. She's here to talk about using seabirds as sentinels for the ocean. Basically, birds can help us track the health of ocean ecosystems and fish populations. And I talk with Katal Omadigan about where pointing comes from. When you point, are you making an arrow with your hand or are you virtually touching something at a distance? Now we have Enriqueta Velarde. She's here to talk about using birds to understand the ocean. Hi, Enriqueta. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining us. What kinds of birds are useful for tracking what's going on in the ocean? So I'm mainly working with terns and gulls. But we can use albatrosses, boobies, any kind of seabird will be giving you some type of information depending on how they use the environment. So they could be telling you things about their prey species. So if they, you know, eat a certain kind of fish, what else can they tell you about the ocean and, and the ecosystem? They can tell you about whether their prey is very abundant or low. Usually, low ocean temperatures will be the base of more productivity. And so when the water temperature increases, then the productivity goes down. So they will tell you about that. They can also tell you about pollution, either from chemicals or from plastics, like particles that they accumulate in their stomachs. Why is it easier, say, if you're looking at surface temperatures and ocean productivity, why, why would it be easier to look at the birds rather than, say, the fish or plankton or something like that? Well, for example, if you want to know something about the fish, usually you have to go with very expensive oceanographic research trips. And if you're looking at the birds and you're at a nesting colony, for example, you can count the number of birds that are nesting or the number of nests that are established. And then you can also weigh the birds or you can see the clutch size, which means maybe they will lay one egg instead of two or three, which is also indicative of lower food availability, lower ocean productivity. These are much more accessible markers of all of these things rather than going to the ocean and trying to find the fish or measuring a lot of a large swath of the ocean temperature. 
Exactly. And if you have a, a large population nesting in a single island, they will be your samplers and they will go out in every direction and they will bring back to the nesting area the information regarding whether there's a lot of food and what type of food there is. Right. There's also this important link between seabirds and fish stocks. We're talking commercial fishing here. Can you describe some of the past observations of this connection? My own experience, for example, is that when I started measuring or looking at the diet of the birds that I work with, they were feeding mainly on Pacific sardines, sardine opsagax. About 90% of their diet was Pacific sardine, and the fleet, the local sardine fishing fleet, was taking a lot of sardines. Later on, the birds started showing less and less sardine in their diet. So about in 1989, I started seeing almost no sardines in their diet. And I went to the fishing fleet industry and I told them, well, you know, the sardine is almost gone. And they were surprised because they were fishing a lot of sardine. They were still being able to get a lot of sardines, but the sardine population collapsed in a couple of years. So they're actually not only indicating how much there is, but they can be predictors of what is going to happen in the following fishing seasons because they're feeding on the small sardines, which are not being fished yet by the fleet. And these small sardines will eventually grow up in one or two years. These sardines are also known as forage fish. They're really a key species. What happens when they're overfished, when they decline? Well, the overfishing of all the forage fish is very important, it's something that is happening worldwide. Yeah. One thing that is very important about these fish is that they are key species. If we have a, the upwelling ecosystems in the ocean. That's when cold water comes up, bringing with it nutrients and food for other birds and fish. Yes, exactly. That's what, ha what enhances the production of phytoplankton and zooplankton. There's a lot of species, many, many species of plankton. Those many, many species of plankton get eaten by only a few species of forage fish, like sardines, anchovies, herrings, and so forth. These few species of fish are then used by seabirds, other larger fish, marine mammals of many, many species, even giant squid, many species. So it's their job to turn plankton into meat. Exactly. And that's why it's called the wasp waste ecosystem. It goes through this very narrow tunnel. And if that tunnel is disrupted, then you're going to have a lot of hungry, big species not able to deal with plankton. Yeah. If those fish are taken by fisheries and they're not taken sustainably, then that will disrupt the food web very drastically. So the birds are here, not only, not only is that food web important to them, but they're also these indicators of when this is happening. Yeah, so they're telling us that the plankton is not available through, for example, Pacific sardine or northern anchovy or other species. How does following these birds and their colonies, how does that line up with other evidence like what satellites can tell us? So actually, we're trying to do that right now. Many other scientists are doing that, trying to relate, for example, the number of birds that are nesting or the breeding success to images that indicate sea surface temperature or chlorophyll concentration. It's turning out to be very interesting because it 
confirms that the seabirds are actually telling us very interesting information. Even without having satellites, for example, if we didn't have satellites, we could learn about the state of the ocean just by looking at what the seabirds are doing. And we have started deploying small, tiny radios on seabirds, and that is also very interesting because that will tell us where they're feeding, what routes, migratory routes they're following before getting to the breeding colony. What does it mean if their migration routes change or the breeding colony changes position or something like that? Well, the breeding colonies have been changing positions recently in many species, and that is a reflection of what's going on in the ocean. For example, the seabirds that I work with, the elegant terns, through the years, their nesting area has been shifting north. They first established a little colony near San Diego. Then that colony grew, and then they went all the way close to L.A. It's about 800 kilometers. In miles, it's about 500 miles, more or less. So they're moving north, and that has coincided with an increase in the ocean temperatures, an increase in the ocean temperatures anomalies in the Gulf of California. And that is a reflection of they're not finding enough food where they used to nest in Isla Raza, where I work. How long have you been studying these terns? 42 years. We need to keep studying these patterns because our life is too short. And if several generations of humans follow the studies, then we'll be able to find something even more interesting than what we're finding now. All right. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for inviting me to, for this interview. And I hope many people read it, hear it, because I think it's good for the public to learn about all these issues. And Raquetta Velarde is a researcher at the Institute of Marine Sciences and Fisheries at the University of Veracruz in Mexico. You can find a link to her article at sciencemag.org slash podcast. This week's episode is brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about STEAM fun. With a KiwiCo subscription, each month the kid in your life will receive a fun, engaging new project, which will help develop their creativity and confidence. The projects are designed to spark creativity and tinkering in kids of all ages. All projects, inspiration, and activities are created by a team of product designers in-house in Mountain View, California, and rigorously tested by kids. Every crate includes all the supplies needed for that month's project, detailed, easy-to-follow instructions, and an educational magazine to learn even more about that crate's theme. KiwiCo inspires kids to see themselves as makers and is on a mission to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. KiwiCo is offering Science Magazine podcast listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit kiwico.com slash magazine. That's kiwico.com slash magazine. Now we have Kao O'Madigan. He and his colleagues wrote about the origins of pointing this week in Science Advances. Hi. Hi. Thanks for um, having I, me on. Oh, sure. I'm going to get my puns out of the way right away. Okay. What's the point? Why nice. is it important <laughs> to know the point of pointing or the origin point of pointing? Strangely, I haven't used that pun myself, so I should. <laughs> so pointing gestures are the first gestures that human infants produce 
that are designed to coordinate the attention of the infant and the parent. And coordinating attention is a very distinctively human skill. So mm. humans, among all other animals, are distinctive for collaborating. And one of the really important aspects of collaboration is that we know that we're both thinking about the same thing. We know that we're both focused on the same thing. That's the only way we can make sense of solving a puzzle together, solving a problem together. Hmm. And pointing coordinates that kind of activity. Pointing coordinates joint attention. So what it does is when kids are about nine to 12 months old, they start to point at objects and they look to see if their parent is looking at the object. And when they see that the parent looks at them, acknowledges that they've both seen the same thing, the kid is happy and takes down the pointing gesture. And mm -hmm. that's, that's really remarkable because what's happening is the child is producing this gesture just for the sake of, quote unquote, telling the parent something, say, look at that, or something, something interesting is over there. They're not asking for it. Exactly. So, for example, it's very distinctive that other species, uh, chimpanzees in particular, I mean, great apes, chimpanzees, orangutans, and bonobos can produce pointing gestures, but generally it's for the sake of having something handed to them. So if they want a grape that's sitting on the ground, they might figure out that if they point at it, they can get a human carer to hand it to them. What they don't seem to do is to point just for the sake of showing you something. So it's always for the sake of getting something. Whereas infants start this spontaneously at around nine months. What about the other direction? So when people point and a dog, or I guess now cats, pay attention to what they're pointing at? Yes. Yeah, so dogs and cats do seem to show uh, the ability to follow pointing gestures. And it's pretty hard to say whether they're producing them. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, um, so, so that, but that does seem to be a way of, do. is it the same kind of thing? I mean, it's pretty close. I think what's noticeable about the case with humans is that even if we can get some other species with a lot of training to follow pointing gestures, to learn that's what's going on, human infants do this completely spontaneously. And they appear to do this in every culture in the world and in exactly the same way. Hmm. When you say, what is the origin of pointing? What are you really asking? What we're trying to figure out is what processes lead to kids producing pointing gestures. A good explanation of pointing is going to have to be one that explains why it results in people paying visual attention to the same thing. And also why, for example, it has the distinctive shape that it does. So if you could imagine that you could point in all sorts of ways, you could point by just sticking your arm out with a fist, let's say, right? or you could point with your thumb, or you could point with your mouth. And there are communities in uh, Australia, the Guguyama Thur, who have a really complex system of different ways of pointing with their mouths. So you could point in all sorts of ways. So then the question is, well, why do human infants all over the world start pointing in exactly the same way? namely with their index finger sticking out and the other fingers curled toward the palm. Hmm. So you use some very clever setups to show how pointing may have originated by looking at how it's acted out and how it is perceived by the viewer. Can we talk about some of these different setups and what you were able to tease out from them? Do you want to start with the way the finger is oriented? Okay, sure. So Ordinarily, if you ask somebody to intuitively explain how a pointing gesture works, generally people will say, well, it's a kind of an arrow where your finger is sticking out in a particular direction and the object that you're referring to is presumably to be found along the, the vector shooting out into space along the angle of your, your extended finger. But uh, what we found is that actually when people are pointing at things, the angle of the extended finger has very little to do with what they're pointing at. If you take photographs of people pointing at things from the side, which is what we did, 
and you trace a line running along the angle of their finger, typically it, it shoots up above the target that they're pointing at, like well and truly above it. If, for example, you're pointing at something on a bulletin board, hand, wrist, knuckle, t- fingertip are not all perfectly aligned. Yeah, exactly. They're not, even if you uh, just focus on the index finger and you just draw a line along the index finger, and let's say you were pointing at something on a bulletin board, in many cases, you might find yourself pointing at the roof. That is to say, the arrow that runs along your finger actually goes up to the roof. But there's another line that connects your eye and your fingertip. If you take photographs of people pointing from the side and you draw that line onto those photographs, you'll find that that picks out what they're referring to very reliably. So the eye line, the fingertip, and the object they're pointing to are all in a line. Exactly. What occurred to us from that was that, you know what, it actually looks like people are so to speak, virtually touching things that they're pointing at. It's like something is in the distance and you pretend you're touching it as it appears in your visual field, like you're giving it a little poke. I feel like you see that more in in little kids. Definitely. The setup we used was we, we got kids and adults to play a game where we would hide balls under cups. And then we would simply say, and it was pretty easy, so they weren't going to lose track of the ball. And then we'd just say, uh, where's the ball? And they would point And we'd video record the whole thing and then take stills of the uh, moments when they pointed and then draw those two lines. And we did a version for 18-month-olds where they would point at a teddy bear that appears behind a screen, sort of by surprise, and they're excited and interested in this, and they point it out for the experimenter. What you find with the very smallest kids is that sometimes they simply stick their finger right up in front of their face, uh, as if (laughs) like more or less uh, vertically up in front of their eye, you know, as if they're imagining the thing is right in front of them and they're touching it. Right. So when you analyze your data across these different age groups, did you see that little kids were more likely to do this kind of touch, touch like pointing? Yes, but the difference between the two angles is very reliably present in all age groups. So okay. um, what we call the touch line, this is this line that leads from your eye through your fingertip and onto the object. That is much, much closer to the object in all age groups. But then the absolute distance of the arrow line, how far away it might end up from the target, is really great with the uh, 18-month-old infants. So that's much more pronounced with the 18-month-olds. And all of this suggests that, to us anyway, that wherever pointing gestures end up in adulthood, they seem to start as these more like attempts to touch things virtually than to create arrows in space, which really doesn't seem to be what people are doing. I really like the example you gave in the summary of the pick-me-up gesture that is common to humans and chimps. Yeah, thanks. So that is an example of what Mike Tomasello and Joseph Call have called a ritualized gesture. When a little child tries to get up, scramble up on her parent, she'll raise her arms as if to try to actually climb up. And then the idea is that once the kid realizes that all she has to do is stick up her arms for the parent to know that she wants to be picked up, this becomes a communicative gesture. And this reaching to touch becomes pointing. Exactly. So we think that pointing emerges from the same kind of process. So originally, we think that what happens is that children are exploring objects by looking at them and touching those objects as they visually explore them. So they're touching them with their extended index finger, and they notice that their parents are paying attention to what they're touching. So they discover their parents' attention as a thing in the world that they can manipulate. And then they try to get their parents to look at other things by, quote unquote, touching, making as if to touch those things, even if those things are farther away. 
And soon the parent and the kid both realize that, okay, when I'm sticking my hand out like this, it means that I want you to pay attention to something. So it becomes a communicative gesture, having started out as something much more concrete and designed to, in this case, get haptic information out of an object, haptic information being touch-based information. Mm -hmm. I think what I really do want to touch on this other example. <laughs> nice. Second that, one. That's good. <laughs> that this other experiment that you put together. And this one also, you know, it made me move my hand around in space. And this yeah. is the idea that this was an examination of wrist position right. when people are pointing. And that also supports his argument of a touch base origin. So can you describe how the position of the wrist relates? So uh, this is a bit tough to do without uh, demonstrating it visually. But so let's say that you're, you're reaching out to point at the label on a bottle of wine on the table in front of you, a little far away from you. And you might just stick your hand out with the palm flat down towards the ground and point at it. Now imagine that the bottle of wine is rotated to its right so that the sticker that you're trying to point at is around the corner, so to speak. It's on the right side of the bottle. Well, you might find that when you go to point at it now, you'll roll your wrist over to the right, just as you would if you were trying to reach out to touch it in its new position on the right side of the bottle. And noticeably, the finger pad of your finger, that's the touchy bit, is what, what you're orienting so that it matches the surface orientation of the thing you're trying to point at. And then if you roll, turn the bottle around to the left, you might find you do this very bizarre movement, which is to roll your, let's say you're pointing with your right hand, is to roll your wrist right around to the left. So now your finger is on the bottom and your the palm of your hand is, is exactly there, right exactly yeah, yeah. it's very weird but it, I I would do this it's yeah. very weird and, and uh, but but not only do adults do it but um, little kids do it as well because kids are so eager to do this you know we had eighteen month olds in this experiment and they would fall right out of their little uh, secure <laughs> chairs when they were trying to roll over to point at the that the, is in the diagram in the, in, the, yeah. in the figure which is yeah, great that's yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> So um, this is just further support for the connection between touching this is and pointing? Exactly. And I think it's even more vivid because you can, I mean, yeah. for, for each of these experiments, you could imagine competing explanations. But when you put them all together, there's really only one thing that explains them all, which is that there is a very close connection between pointing and touch. Well, let's get back to the, the root question here, which is, what is the origin of pointing? And so if this holds up, if touching seems to be the origin of pointing. What does that mean for understanding human communication and, and bigger questions like that? At the very least, I think it gives us a clear picture of, or much clearer than it was before, picture of what's happening in this, in this first year of life. One theory of the origin of these communicative gestures could be that children have a rich theory of mind, that they're thinking about what you're looking at, they're thinking about how you interpret their gesture. So that's a kind of a cerebral account of, of these gestures. So what we want is something like an account that allows us to see how these kind of gestures can be produced and can coordinate attention more or less automatically, placing very little demands on the cognition of the infant. So this account does that, right? This kind of evidence shows that, oh, well, if pointing gestures are emerging more or less automatically out of touch exploration, then we can see how coordination of attention in humans may be just an accident of the fact that we happen to pay attention to what we're touching. And we also happen to pay attention to what other people are touching. In principle, this could play a big part in the story of how humans become so good at coordinating attention and coordinating action. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was really great fun. Thanks a lot. Cattle O'Madigan is a researcher. Oh boy. Okay. Why don't, can you just say what your job is? I'm a researcher at the Department d'Etudes Cognitives at the École Normale Supérieure 
in Paris. You can find a link to his science advances paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. To place an ad on the podcast, contact mineral.com. The show is produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.